Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome Alyssa Moore to the podcast. Alyssa is an attorney at McGuire Woods and lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with her husband and four children. When her son, Cormac, was diagnosed with epilepsy at age nine, it began a long and often frustrating journey through the medical system, a journey that she says opened her eyes to the need for better understanding of epilepsy across the healthcare system. Alyssa is here today to talk about the struggles she encountered trying to get care for Cormac and share what she has learned in hopes that it will help other parents, caregivers, and patients as they navigate their own epilepsy journeys. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us today. I want you to tell me about your son, Cormac, and how epilepsy first entered your lives and, and how he was diagnosed. Thank you, Kelly, for having me and, and giving me the opportunity to tell Cormac's story. Um, Cormac is my second of four children. Um, he's you know, red hair, uh, blue eyes, all spitfire, um, very active into sports, very physical. Um, he was nine on the date of his first seizure. And up until that point, we really had no indication or no warning or anything that something like this would happen. Um, it was April 17th of 2019. And it was my oldest son's birthday. And so we we're trying to kind of have a celebratory feel in the house. And I went to wake Cormac up at 640, which is normal and sent him downstairs and tidied up upstairs. And all of a sudden, I heard a very um, a loud noise, almost like a shout. Um, and then followed, I heard my husband screaming for me and I raced down and there was Cormac just on the kitchen floor in the middle of this very violent, what I know now know is a tonic clonic seizure. And it just wasn't stopping. I mean, I, I pretty much instantly called EMS. I obviously you're kind of racing. Your mind is going through what could this be? And I eliminated everything I could think of. Like he's not choking. I, this couldn't be a heart attack. Like, but he's not conscious. He's turning blue. I mean, it was just, um, as, as probably many of us now know, I mean, it's just so terrifying. And, um, I'm lucky it was stone's throw from, the fire station and also the hospitals, they were there within four minutes. And the seizure itself was about five. And they came and did his vitals like, oh, everything looks good. He looks like he had a seizure, I guess. Let's put him in the ambulance and we'll go to the hospital. And I went with him, obviously, in the ambulance and got there and was kind of expecting that we would be in admitted. I, I didn't really know what to expect. But I certainly didn't expect that within the hour we would be discharged and walking out. Um, the within the hour. Within the hour. I mean, the physician said anyone can have a seizure. This is hopefully a fluke. Uh, his vitals look great. He passed all of our little neurological tests. So uh, just head on home and call the pediatric neurologist and try to get in within the next week. And I, that was really disturbing. I, I didn't understand. I literally an hour before saw him on the floor and, and thought he was, I mean, I thought he was dying and I didn't know. So we walked out and Cormac had this massive headache. I mean, he 
he was throwing up. I called pediatric neurology as soon as I got home and they said, okay, we'll see you in about like six weeks. And I just, I said, that's just unacceptable. I said, that is completely unacceptable. We need to be seen earlier. And there was no option, no alternative. So I just started working my networks and my friends. And I was fortunate that one of my friends connected me with a pediatric neurologist who saw me later that day, kind of did the same thing. I don't know what else she could have done, but she said, oh, it looks good. And his neurological signs are strong and fine. So hopefully it's a fluke. Unfortunately, it was not. And we're almost two years into this journey. What did it take to get the epilepsy diagnosis? One week later, literally to the minute, it was 6.50 in the morning, the exact same thing, exact same thing happened. He was down for five minutes. I called EMS. They did come promptly. And this time we went to the other hospital's ER and they did an EEG in the ER. And a resident popped in after the test and was like, hey, he has an abnormal EEG. He is diagnosed with epilepsy and here's a prescription for Keppra. And I was like, well, I mean, <laughs> wait a minute. What do you mean? Like, wh what does this mean? And he said, well, it just means that his brain, you know, his brain electro pattern is off. And this is not entirely atypical. And Keppra is successful with 80% of patients. It was just so cavalier and so... Um, flippant that I just really thought, well, this is obviously something that happens. And I guess once again, I shouldn't be too concerned. And this drug works for 80% of the people. So I'm sure that we'll be fine. I'd love to know where he got that statistic from. For the record, one third of patients diagnosed with epilepsy don't respond to treatment. So this idea that 80% of seizures respond to Keppra is just ludicrous to me. So you get an epilepsy diagnosis off the cuff, this prescription for Keppra, and you're sent home. How did he respond to the medication? Um, really not well. I do Which remember that I- Which is unusual with Keppra. I mean, it works wonders for some people, and for others, there's major behavioral side effects. You're exactly right. I mean, we experienced an unreal change in his behavior, and- no corresponding change to the seizures. I mean, the seizures continued. Uh, we had one massive uh, seizure per week and um, Kepra did not touch that. But I saw this little guy who, I mean, if before he might've said, you know, I'm gonna throw this shoe at you. Now it was like, I'm throwing the shoe at you. And by the way, I'm gonna go get a baseball bat and I'm gonna break the chair and I'm gonna throw, you know, his behavior went from what I could defend as maybe typical nine-year-old boy anger to, okay, we've got a serious problem here, and he's a little, he's dangerous. And you have three other children in the house. Absolutely. And I mean, I felt like we had to protect ourselves from him. It was just really sad. It was like a, a Band-Aid was ripped off his brain or something, and all the inhibitions that he had worked hard in his life to kind of create were gone. And throughout this, you don't have a pediatric neurologist to consult. Not really. I mean, once they said after that second ER visit, we needed to have a pediatric neurologist, I did connect then with the person that had seen us as a favor on that first day. And she became our treating neurologist. But by his maybe fourth seizure, um, she, had ref she referred us up to an epileptologist. But I was shocked that 
he would have these big seizures and I would call and I was still new to it. And I mean, I think you're probably, no matter how new to it you are, these are always upsetting and you're always feeling, you know, confused of what should I do? And you you just want to talk to a medical provider. I was shocked that it was literally like, well, just up the dose. And I couldn't believe that, you know, when you have an infant and the infant has a situation, the pediatricians have you come in, you know, so it's a different, it was just a different, I guess it could be the difference in having a chronic condition versus an otherwise healthy child that maybe has an ear infection. But I was desperate for somebody to see him either after he had a seizure so they could say, okay, you know, maybe Keppra isn't right. Maybe we shouldn't just keep upping the dose. Um, so once we got that referral to the epileptologist, um, I felt a little bit better. I also want to highlight something that you mentioned that I don't think I certainly didn't know. I learned um, as we were going through the motions that not every neurologist is an epileptologist. Every epileptologist is a neurologist, but that there is a major difference there between someone who specializes in seizures, who can read an EEG, who understands, you know, triggers and the the pharmacology of it versus someone who treats headaches and other neurological conditions. Completely. And, you know, our epileptologists, and I don't know if this is for, I don't know for sure if it's all of the epileptologists, but our health system has them in a small town about um, 30 minutes away from Charlotte. So we started traveling up there. We were admitted to the EMU and um, this to this physician, to her credit, you know, instantly said, you know, we need to order a genetic test because I'm here the whole time. Like, I don't understand why haven't we done an MRI? I mean, should we do a CT? Have we done blood work? Have we truly uncovered every stone? We're at, you know, five to six major five minute long tonic clonic seizures. Why do I have zero answers still? And why isn't anyone taking this with a sense of urgency? I realize it's not your child, but I mean, we had a completely neurotypical child um, up until April 17th of 2019. And it's like, oh, no big deal. And I'm not a stranger to the healthcare system. I come from a family of physicians. I feel very comfortable in healthcare. And here I was completely unable to push the ball forward to get answers. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Since 1998, Cure Epilepsy has raised over $78 million to fund more than 260 epilepsy research projects in 16 countries around the world. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. We were with an epileptologist at a you know level four unit. The doctor ordered this genetic test and said, okay, Kepra's not working, we'll move over to Depakote. And by the end of that stay, had also added ethosuccinide um, with her theory being that he was having absent seizures that were leading to these tonic-clonic seizures. And at this point, if the first seizure was April, we are now um, end of June. Um, and she was happy to report that the genetic test had come back and he had an SCN1A mutation which is the mutation that is um, most commonly referred to as that you have, can have Dravet syndrome. And she was happy to see this because she was on the right track with treating his seizures with Depakote. We did not, unfortunately, see any change in the severity of the seizures. And this is the epileptologist. This isn't a geneticist or a genetic counselor. This no. is No. 
And again, you know, I was handed the genetic report and told we were on the right track. And I started doing, you know, with the Facebook online groups, which have been really, really helpful and really informative. So July 1st, my son threw up and wasn't quite himself. And we chalked it up to like the 100 degree heat here in Charlotte. But I, I that was the start of kind of this 15 day period of decline where um, he would have some different seizures. He had tonic clonic seizures. Long story short, in that 15 days, um, I called the physician's office nine times and I went to the ER four times because he had stopped eating. He was sensitive to light. He couldn't stand the smell of anything. He couldn't eat. He hated to drink. He couldn't watch TV. He wouldn't, he couldn't do anything. He laid on a couch and I knew that his medicine had gone toxic. If that, I don't know if that's really the right phrase, but something neurologically was very wrong. And I could not get through. I mean, I just couldn't get through to that physician's office. And I'd go to the ER and his blood levels were always fine. His liver enzymes were great. He could pass neurological tests. Um, but I knew, I just knew something was wrong. So I called my dad. And my dad's an academic physician at Wake Forest. And I, I'm close with, I mean, we're, we have a great relationship, but I hadn't wanted to really lean on him or put him in a position with his colleagues that was awkward. Um, but he also saw Cormac and, and felt that he had to do something. He had to rip him out of Charlotte. And so we went up to Wake Forest and were admitted into their EMU um, in July, at the in middle of July. And we were admitted, the electrodes were put on, and within three hours, the team came in and said, look, he's, he has encephalopathy, he's basically got brain waves the speed of a two-year-old right now, and we really, we really need to get him off of Depakote, and this could be um, a difficult time here. But they um, put him onto Onfi as they were taking that Depakote off, and so we were lucky that we didn't really, we didn't see any seizures during this time. And within about three days, his appetite came back and he perked up and and he was back to normal. So I will forever be grateful to Wake Forest for, um, for getting us the help we needed because nobody else was listening. Well, and credit to you for, for continuing to fight and for trusting your instinct. So Wake Forest becomes your new um, place of care but it's over an hour away, right? So how do you manage emergencies in the meantime? Right, that was one of my questions to them when we got discharged. I said that exact question, you know, what do I do if we have an emergency situation in Charlotte? And they just said, well, you call EMS, you go to the local hospital and ask to be transferred. And I, was, I felt pretty good about that. I thought that was a pretty good plan. Um, so I was, not expecting, though, that we would challenge that kind of uh, plan the day after we got home. So we had been gone for nine days. I just got back and Cormac had a massive seizure. And so we were at the ER that very next day. And I said, uh, you know, I'd like to be transferred to Wake Forest. And they said, no, I don't think so. And I didn't really push it. I don't I mean, it's not legal for them to deny that request. But um, I didn't push it because I do have three other children and my life here. And I was trying to keep things somewhat together 
So I said, you know, I need you to be in communication with the Wake Forest doctor. And you would have thought I had asked them to communicate with somebody across, you know, in Antarctica. I mean, it was like, oh, and it was very difficult. And um, we needed a rescue medication in the ER. And they said, okay, let's, let's put him on this one. It was an IV. And I said, can you please call Wake Forest? Can you please make sure it's okay? And they finally got a hold of the doctor you know, it was late at night and the doctor said, yes, I just had this feeling that like, there's something missing. There's some piece of information I don't have. And so I kept saying, who do you give this rescue med to? There's anyone that has seizures that won't stop. I said, okay, do you give it to kids? Yes, they give it to kids. And I'm trying to think like, what is it here that I need to know? I said, wait, do you give it to kids or people who have a sodium channel mutation? And they said, no, we don't. And I said, then take it out. And it made me realize then and there that as much as I adore my Wake Forest doctor, when you're calling him at 10 at night from an emergency situation, he doesn't have the file in front of him. You are your kid's advocate. You absolutely have to speak up. I respect the nurses and the physicians, and I don't, I don't want to undermine them. But I also am best prepared at that moment with the information about my kid, and I have got to push the button. It's a difficult concept. I mean, it took me months, if not a year to really come to terms with, um, I know my daughter best, even though I don't have MD after my name, I have earned a PhD in my daughter. So Alyssa, what were the uh, ramifications? How did it affect Cormac's academic, behavioral, psychological? Because, you know, during all of the, he's gone through months now of seizures and pharmaceutical side effects. How did that, how did that affect him? We started school in August in a very unstable situation. I, he is a complete fighter. He is the most determined, hardworking kid that I, I know. And he struggled. I mean, he had gone, he was kind of your average student, um, in third grade and in fourth grade, which we were starting, um, he could barely hang on. And we were very fortunate that our school allowed our nanny to sit with him in the classroom. And she was just that extra set of eyes. Again, a luxury that I know so many people don't have and something I want to change because it's terrifying to send your kid into the world, knowing that without warning, he could collapse and injure himself. So we, we had the full-time nanny slash aide sitting with him. We had tutors. We had all types of support for him to succeed in that environment. But academically, it was really challenging. Um, psychologically, it was a disaster. Um, he was in a therapy, like a talk therapy or play therapy with no real impact. He was an amazing therapy kid. The therapist would say, oh, he's so fantastic. He's got all this down. And then, you know, take him out of therapy even for a minute. And it was back to this, I call it, and I don't know the real term, disassociated behavior. I mean, he was just um, angry, raging. Um, it tended to have a little bit of a pattern. So I could anticipate that every night at seven o'clock, we would have to have a two hour battle. Um, and because it was so clockwork like that, I did at one point think it was medicine related and that was doctors weren't really sold on that because if they had 
he was admitted at one point back to the EMU to see if it could be a side effect of the medication, but nothing showed up. And also that behavior went away in the hospital. So that was one of the struggles was finding somewhere where we could get the seizures treated, but also kind of the full picture of like, we need psychiatric help and I need somebody to help me with this because I cannot figure out where to go. Where did you find help? So again, I just reached out to my connections and was so, so very fortunate to get um, into Mayo Clinic almost right before the pandemic. And it was just an incredible experience because it was the comprehensive integrated approach that I had been desperately fighting for from the start. So we had consults with the epileptologist and with the nutritionist, um, with the genetic counselor, with psychiatry. You know, we had the full workups of blood work. We had two EEGs and an inpatient stay. I mean, it really, they checked the box on everything. And also I would say on the psychiatric side, I had been feeling that he was ADHD. I mean, he his ability to attend to any task in school was basically none. And they did give him an ADHD diagnosis, which was helpful then in, in treating that and kind of bringing some ability, uh, helping him focus. Well, and it helps with your IEPs for school. It helps get additional therapies through the state. It's amazing. Um, an ADHD or an autism diagnosis can open a lot of doors for epilepsy patients. And um, just how common those com comorbidities are. I mean, everything that you are describing, the ADHD, the emotional side effects, these are all very well-known, very well-documented comorbidities. How is Cormac's health and how are his seizures? Well, so when remote learning began in March, I was somewhat optimistic that I would, we would see sort of a reprieve, but what I actually, what I actually saw, and I think it was important that he was actually having seizures every nine to 11 days. Um, and they weren't full on tonic clonic. They are still kind of trying to figure out exactly what they are, but um, it just necessitated another inpatient stay at the end of this past summer where we removed Vimpat and put uh, zinisamide, added that to his regime. And after a couple of tough weeks, um, I'm very happy to report we're in kind of what they describe at Mayo as a honeymoon period. So he has not had a seizure since the end of September. Um, I don't, um, I, I live every day grateful for that. I don't put too much stock in it. You know, I just am like, okay, it's another day. Um, but it is amazing. The psychiatric episodes have decreased dramatically. Um, I don't see a pattern anymore of the 7 p.m. meltdown. He still is a little obstinate sometime and defiant, but it's just, I think it's a little more typical behavior for a, a now 11-year-old. And in school, he is, he is hanging in there. I mean, speed processing is a problem and memory is an issue, both of which I think are impacted by his drugs. But the other problem is speech fluency. And one of the side effects of zanisamide, they told me, would be speech issues. And he now, he has a stutter but he is really great. He just doesn't think about it and doesn't worry about it. And I, I will take that over the seizures that we were seeing. So I really feel like he's kind of back uh, for the moment, um, more himself academically and, and psychologically. Well, that is amazing news. And so happy to hear that. And we'll all keep crossing fingers and toes that 
it stays that way and this honeymoon period extends. What advice do you have to other parents who are on this journey uh, or who are just beginning? I mean, I think to the extent that people are comfortable ta- you know, talking about that, using your connections, your social network, you know, getting the message out there, like, this is not acceptable. It's really not acceptable. Because I think the more you're willing to share with people, people are so gracious. I learned so much by just opening myself to literally every person that I could meet. Cormac's story is is nuts. In a lot of ways, it was this explosive onset of an intractable, generalized primary epilepsy. And just even typing those words into a computer, I got a lot of support groups that popped up. Um, so that was really helpful. And I think the third thing would just, you know, read as much as you can. And I realize it's it's really hard to do all of these things depending on where, where you live or what your situation is. Um, but I think there are so many wonderful people out there who are willing to help. The more that you put yourself out there, the more you'll find Absolutely. That is all incredible, incredible advice. And I just appreciate so much you sharing your journey with us um, to to let other parents know that it's okay to, to have the fight and that that's what it takes. And we wish you and Cormac and the rest of your family uh, so many well wishes and seizure-free days in the future. And just thank you so much for, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Alyssa, for sharing your experiences and advice for others in the epilepsy community. As your story demonstrates, the journey to effective treatment of seizures can be long and challenging. In recent years, new drugs have offered relief to some patients, but too many others are unable to attain seizure freedom. More than one-third of all epilepsy patients do not respond to traditional epilepsy treatments and therapies. The best hope for these patients lies in epilepsy research that will lead us to better therapies and ultimately to cures. That is why Cure Epilepsy is dedicated to funding epilepsy research. We hope you will continue to fund the research that promises so much to so many by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual specific health situation.